Welcome back to Starting With A Story. My name is John Lee, recent college graduate who just happened to stumble upon a microphone. And each week, I hope to bring you a person or story that motivates and inspires you to grow and connect with more people every single day. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now, let's get to our story. Today, I have the incredible honor of introducing a phenomenal professor, a published author, and my good friend, Dr. Mark Scott. I took a few of his classes during both semesters of my freshman year at Villanova University, and they were definitely a few of my favorite courses. Dr. Scott has since then moved back to Canada to teach even more collegiate courses, but I assure you that his legacy will live on forever at Villanova. The best way that I could describe him is that he's known for his energy, his insight, and even his strength. I kid you not, this man can literally bench 315 pounds. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't even come close to that. <laughs> but in addition to his physical prowess, Dr. Mark Scott has shared his knowledge across a variety of topics during this interview, ranging from the art of teaching, the impact of having children, the difficulty of sacrifice, and some incredible insight to the everlasting question of, who am I? Get ready, because this one is an absolute treat. So lean back, relax, and listen in. All right, hello, welcome back to Starting With A Story. Today we have a doctor, a friend, and a professor. We have Dr. Mark Scott here today. Say hello to the Starting With The Story community. Hello all. Great to see you, John. It's been a while. How are things going? Uh, things are things are going great. Thank you for asking. It was, uh, mm-hmm. it was a beautiful day at work today. We had a potluck. Yeah. I made uh, right. chocolate-covered strawberries, and everybody really liked them, so that, that was good. That was good. Very nice. Myself. It was good, yeah. Today, today it was good. Just a lot of time at the gym, a lot of time with some friends and the family, and then tonight hockey. So a good Canadian winter's day here. Awesome, awesome. So for all of the listeners that don't know Dr. Mark Scott, he was my professor back in college, my freshman and sophomore year. And then there was a dark day where he decided that uh, he had to go and do bigger, better things and move back to Canada. But um, I'm so grateful and so glad that we were able to stay in contact and connect. And now I really do consider him a great friend. And he's really insightful. And I can't wait for you guys to listen to his story today. Well, you're very kind. You're very kind. I, I think back fondly on our days at Villanova <laughs> and ACS. What a group we had in yeah, our class. Yeah. Do you remember that class? ACS, ACS. So ACS is a, a class that was offered at Villanova. It was Ancients Cultural Seminar, I believe. Right. It was it was Augustine and Culture seminar. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but there were two right. there were two parts. You're right. There were two parts: ancients and modern. Oh, right, right, right. So that's what you were right, thinking yeah. about. 
But uh, here's the, here's the list. Time. John Lee, listen to this. Here's the list. Gabriella, mm-hmm. Krista, Margaret, Benjamin, Lauren, Andrea, Jay, uh, Laura, you, Anthony, Victoria, John Mahler. Do you remember John came in the second oh, part? Oh, yeah, yeah. He and we had to decide. Like, and remember, he's the cousin yeah. to Jimmy. Mm, right, the friend right, of the right. people, Jimmy. And then there was Christopher Neely, of course, and Alexandra and Kathy. So we had an interesting group. Yeah, we had a, we had a powerhouse of a class. And I, was. I'm still friends with a, a decent amount of them. So that class okay. was awesome. And I, I really I really would like to point out that we were that close because of your class, in all honesty. Um, oh, that's kind. Well, it, it was the perfect form to create a sense of intimacy because we were together, what, twice a week for an hour and a bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for an yeah. entire academic year, yeah, yeah, and and we were gathering together to discuss big ideas mm-hmm. and to look at kind of famous ancient texts as a great books course. So I think the format really was conducive for creating intimacy, and and it was great because in contrast to lecture courses where you don't get to know your students very much, mm-hmm. this was a seminar. So by definition, we were more in dialogue with each other. So yeah. it was a great time. Amen, amen. And as as an engineer, we didn't have many discussion-based classes, so it was really refreshing to have a class where I didn't necessarily have to worry about formulas or math problems or figuring out a situation. I just could kind of unload and really get to the the heart of situations and topics and really get to know other people through their writing, through their stories. And so I, I really appreciated that class. So a lot of the audience member they don't they don't really know who you are. They don't know. Mm how you ended up at Volnova, how you ended up teaching this course. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, how your upbringing and your story and how you kind of came to where you are now? Sure, yeah. I always knew from a really young age that I wanted to teach and write. And so I went into my undergraduate at McMaster University to study religious studies, which is not a a very famous major that people go into, but it was the topic that really interested me the most. So I went to McMaster University, and that's in Hamilton, Ontario, and had some really great professors and and really great mentors there. And so after doing my undergraduate there in religious studies, I went on to Yale Divinity School and did my master's there and made some great friends and, and more great professors. And then finally, I went to Harvard University, and did my PhD there in religious studies through the Committee on the Study of Religion. And after that, I taught at Concordia University in Montreal and the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. And then it was after that that I came to Villanova. Mm. And it was interesting because Villanova was a change of pace for me in a number of ways. One was because it was it had a Catholic identity. I'd never taught at a place that had an explicitly Catholic identity. Mm-hmm. And the other way it was different is my teaching wasn't exactly in the area of religious study. It was more in the Great Books program, which is an interdisciplinary program. Mm-hmm. So in two ways, it was kind of outside of my comfort zone. <laughs> but I really grew to to love it and love the students and and my colleagues. My colleagues in the Augustine and Culture Seminar and in the theology and religious studies department, they're just really first-rate people. So, so I look back fondly at it and think about the students often and, and my colleagues from there. So that's how I, I got there. There was a lot of moving around and mm-hmm. yeah, uh, from sure. Canada to the U.S. and different parts of the U.S. and and that's how I ended up at at Villanova. Yeah, awesome, awesome. I'm so glad that you did end up at Villanova for at least a little bit. 
Yeah, I was there three years. Three years. I was yeah from 2012 mm. to 2015. Mm. Awesome, awesome. What I'm so curious about is what were the main differences from like teaching and studying in America and the U.S. versus Canada and your journey on coming and going from both and going back. Oh, sure. Canada? Each each university has its own intellectual environment or atmosphere that's distinctive. And it's created by the professors that are there, by the students, and the different kind of theorists and intellectual trajectories that are followed in that particular place. Mm-hmm. So no two places that I've ever been have been alike. They've all been so different. And so I would say at McMaster University, mm-hmm. I had professors that um, were really excellent. And so we were really focused on intense textual study and uh, a lot of writing assignments. Mm. And so in some ways it was a very kind of traditional education, um, learning how to read carefully and to write carefully. At Yale Divinity School, one of the big differences was that you had all of these people from different countries and different states. So it was a lot more international flavor. Mm. And the emphasis there, in addition to careful reading and writing, was to have a constructive edge, to learn how to to make an argument and to learn how to uh, develop a professional identity. So that was a, a kind of key difference. And it was more globally focused, I would say, at Yale Divinity School. And, and then at Harvard, you know, at that level, I was doing a lot of advanced research. And, and so you start to narrow your focus. Mm-hmm to your, whatever your dissertation happens to be. Mm-hmm. And there, as at Yale, it was just, it was great to be in constant contact with, with really high caliber people and, mm-hmm. and scholars. But each environment was different. The campuses were different. And, and I learned, you know, I learned something from each place and made friendships from each place. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but they were never identical. And that's why I think it's helpful for people who do multiple degrees to do it at different institutions because you get a sense of how things are done differently and you learn different lessons from each place. So I think it's enriching rather than getting every degree from the same place. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I uh, So as you know, I just recently graduated from Villanova and still on the kind of journey on do I want to go back to school or do I not? Right. And, you know, I, I don't really know what I want to do right now. Like I'm working and making money is nice, but at the same time, like <laughs> advancing my education is always like a great investment in your, in yourself and personal development. But, um, yeah. what, um, what, what things really stuck out to you when you were pursuing and furthering your education? Like why, why did you do that? The passion and, um, kind of mm-hmm. what drove you throughout that whole process? Yeah. I think that's the key word passion because you can't get through those long nights at the library and many, many months of solitary study um, without having a deep passion that's fueling you because it's difficult. And and you spend so much time in the bowels of the library looking at ancient texts that people haven't taken out since 1954. And and so you you really have to have a passion that sustains you and a vision to know why you're there and what you're doing to and to have goals, big goals, and then smaller goals that are attainable to help get you there. So, I, like I said, I always knew I wanted to teach and write, mm. and so I knew that getting a PhD would was necessary for me to pursue the next step of becoming a professor. So I always had these goals in mind, 
And then I would each day try to make each day about something, having a smaller achievable goal. But I would say, you know, for you, if you're wondering about whether to do higher education, just think about what do you want to do ultimately? It's mm -hmm. like in, at Villanova when they had the, the leadership, you can be fit in faith and reason and leadership and all of these learning communities. Mm -hmm. And one of the big principles in the leadership learning community was begin in the, begin with the end in mind. Mm -hmm. And so if you're to pursue a degree, what's the end toward which you would be moving toward? And so if it's an MBA, what would be the purpose of getting an MBA? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then what's the right timing as well? Because sometimes if you leave too much space between, say, your undergraduate and doing a graduate degree, mm -hmm. you can lose interest in and, and lose lose the passion. Yeah, so there's a case to be made to doing it right away before you get too comfortable and complacent, mm -hmm. making, the, making the Benjamins. Mm, the Benjamins. <laughs> amen, amen. <laughs> so you mentioned that you uh, multiple times that you started at a very young age where you knew you yeah. wanted to be teaching what mm -hmm. were those experiences that led for you to find that passion yeah as a as a young man i was always a voracious reader so i always read a lot so i always read a lot of literature the bible c.s like, lewis and i feel like so many people don't do enough of that um, nowadays yeah well we didn't have cell phones back then <laughs> right yeah we didn't true. so i wasn't texting anybody mm -hmm. I wasn't texting anybody, and, and, and we didn't have Netflix, no. so I wasn't binge-watching uh, anything. And, so, <laughs> and I lived also in the forest. I lived kind of in a secluded area on 10 mm -hmm. acres of land. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like I could just go outside and play basketball with my friends. We were out in the wilderness a little mm -hmm. bit. And so when we, were, when we weren't working the land, chopping wood or shoveling, snow and things of that nature mm. and we weren't playing hockey we played a lot of hockey and sports mm. in my house um yeah, when i wasn't doing those things build. i was yeah, yeah that's right very, yeah that's a sturdy build you got not there. a figure skating build <laughs> not a figure, figure skating build no a hockey a hockey build um so so when i wasn't doing those things working or playing sports mm. i was reading and imagining a life of, of teaching and and writing and so that set me on a course really early. And then I was fortunate to have, even from high school, to have mentors who kind of guided me to, to the next step and suggested schools to go to and, and could kind of see around corners that I couldn't and teach me how to achieve those next goals. So it was actually a high school history teacher who suggested I go to McMaster. And at McMaster, it was my professors that suggested I go to Yale, and at Yale it was other professors suggesting yeah. to go to Harvard. So throughout, I had mentors that were that were helping me and mm -hmm. facilitating um, kind of the next steps. Mm -hmm. What were what were some of the most impactful things that these mentors of yours taught you or talked to you about? I remember one mentor talked about when you start a new place, mm -hmm. don't try to build off of the steam of what you've done before. You have to learn how to um, not rest on your laurels. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was going into my master's program with a lot of awards and accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And his advice was just begin again. Don't assume no one here knows you mm -hmm. and here's no knows what you've accomplished. So um, be willing to work hard. I had, another fr I had a friend actually who had a, his principle was work 10 percent harder than everyone else. That was mm -hmm. his principle for success. Mm -hmm. He said that extra 10 percent is what makes the difference. And so I always really worked hard. I remember being at the libraries late. I was really committed 
um, to the to the life of study and to the craftsmanship of writing. And so I really committed to that to that life and tried to absorb what was around me in terms of the culture and the people and, and what I was learning and to benefit from that and then to bring that to wherever I was and to find ways to apply it, you know, such as, such as at Villanova, mm -hmm. um, a different setting. Because when I was at the University of Missouri, just before Villanova, I was lecturing. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different mode of pedagogical discourse than seminar leading. Yeah, for sure. And so to learn how to adapt and make those adjustments, mm -hmm. um, I think, I think that that's also a piece of advice. Don't try to just replicate what you've learned and how you've done things in every place, but learn how to make those adaptations. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, were there were there any like aside from the the super late nights and studying in <laughs> dark corners of the the library? <laughs> what were the other struggles that you were facing um, throughout your your story? Oh, poverty, poverty. poverty. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't make you're not. Uh, you're not really rich during these times. And so, and so I remember I had a student that once said that he was as broke as a joke. And I, I felt a deep sense of solidarity with that. <laughs> and so, yeah, when you're doing your advanced degrees and, and when you're first starting out, you're not making a lot of money. And so, so that, so that's always a big challenge, especially early on. And as everywhere we were moving, my wife and I were having children along the way. I mean, she yeah. was doing most of the having children, but we were together. And, mm -hmm. and so we were, we had our first born in Boston and our second born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then mm -hmm. Columbia, Missouri, mm -hmm. and then Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. So everywhere we were moving, so a lot of the places we were yeah. having children along the way. <laughs> <You're> just, <laughs> right? Just having a child everywhere. Yeah, just where are we going? Wherever, that's fine. We'll go have a child. Yeah, and so, and so that creates its own challenges logistically. And another challenge was being so far away from home because yeah. most of my family lives in the Barrie, Ontario area or the Aurelia area in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And so we're in a lot of ways a really tight knit family. And so to be so far away from home, and my family and friends, that was a big challenge throughout the whole process. Yeah. And especially early on, I think, when I first moved to Yale, I, I think I was really homesick. And I was surprised by how homesick I was mm -hmm. and the degree to which that could be paralyzing until you begin to discover and develop new communities. Awesome, awesome. So what kind of changed in your life after having kids? I feel like that. Yeah. causes a huge dynamic shift in your own life and your studies and your teaching and your family oh, sure. and everything. Yeah. So what kind of changed uh, once the kids started coming around? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, there are practical changes mm -hmm. because you, your schedule is really shaped by having kids, by when they get up, by what they need. And so there are practical changes in terms of what you're able to do. You're not able to go out at night in the same way. Obviously traveling mm -hmm. becomes more difficult. And so there are, there are lots of logistical and practical changes involved, but then also a focus change, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not as focused in some ways on your studies because you want to spend a lot of time with your family, yeah. but it's also just an expansive experience because you're being enriched and your heart's expanding as your mm -hmm. love's growing for your family. Mm -hmm. And so it begins with the love for each other as a couple, and then you have a child and you think our love is so full and then you have another child, and, and it's like a friend of mine said, love doesn't divide, it multiplies. You just keep growing in love. And so uh, so it becomes wonderful. And then another change is that you start to connect more 
with other families, young families, mm -hmm. and doing things more with them. Um, so a lot changes, a lot changes. And just even having, you know, an ACS in the Augustine and Culture Seminar at Villanova, the guiding question of the course, you'll remember, is, is who am I? It was all about identity, uh, yeah. right? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember. I have a... Right, so we spent... Every, yeah. Right, yeah. So we spent a lot of time thinking about that. And so when you become a father, when you become a parent, that's a, that's a shift in identity that's pretty dramatic. Yeah. And it's exciting. As you will discover, I'm sure. <laughs> Not in maybe the near future. Yeah, yeah. But, I don't think yeah. in the near future, but maybe. But, maybe <laughs> but no, I really appreciate you uh, you sharing that about your family. That's really awesome. And congrats to four beautiful children. You know? Four children, yes. It keeps That's us amazing. busy. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, boys, two girls. And you brought up the, the core message of the, the course that I took yeah. with you. Right. Uh, which was, again, who am I? And mm -hmm. I feel like that question is so loaded. Yes. I still have no idea. Every year that passes by, I, I know less and less. And I feel like that's something that a lot of students that cross your path kind of go through. Oh, sure. And I think the course, you know, in the process of reading the great books that we read and, and having these deep discussions and writing assignments, mm -hmm. I think it's not that we try to answer the question in the course. I think it's that we try to equip each other to constantly revisit that question throughout our life. And so it's an ongoing question that you'll constantly revisit. And there will be key moments that will be decisive in answering it. But I think we never reach um, a conclusion. I think it's it's a constant uh, meditation on, on, you know, who am I and what are the passions that drive me and what, what direction am I going and who are the people that are shaping me and that I can be a part of their lives. So I think it's a, it's a constant negotiation of our reality with others and the world around us. In my time after college, the, the question of who am I in personal development just mm -hmm. comes back over and over and over yeah. again. And you deal with a lot of uh, students that are yeah. kind of in that age where, you know, we're pretty vulnerable, we're pretty malleable, like mm -hmm. everything kind of influences us. What are some misconceptions that you come across as you're, working with these students and these individuals hmm. going through that? Oh, well, sure. Well, one, I think one common misconception is just an excessive concern hmm. about answering that question in relation to what others think about them. Hmm. So I think a lot of students that I encounter <laughs> are really kind of obsessively concerned hmm. with how they're perceived by their friends or even people that they don't know directly, but people they're encountering on social media. Hmm. And so I think they put a lot of uh, weight on the question, who am I, through the lens of, well, what do other people say about me? Yeah. And so I think that's that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. Because I think people can teach us about who we are, but they can't answer the question exhaustively. Mm -hmm. And if we give them the power to define us, mm -hmm. then I think inevitably yeah. that's going to lead to a kind of warping. Mm -hmm. And So I think that's one. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes I, I find that students, they're afraid to fully, to kind of dig deep. They're afraid to really push themselves and I find they, they encounter these barriers and whether it's fear of trying their very hardest and not succeeding, mm -hmm. I think that's a barrier. I think there's a fear about appearing to try too hard in front of their peers. I think mm -hmm. that's a, that's a pressure. And so, so that can be, that can get in the way of trying to answer the question, who am I? They don't really put themselves out there as, as fully as mm -hmm. possible. And there's all these social pressures that I think, help to account for that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then there's just, there are so many distractions, 
right? There's so many distractions. Way too many. Way How too can many. you answer the question, who am I, when you're checking your phone every two minutes for who's liking your Instagram <laughs> picture or something, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot, and that's hard. I think there are a lot of distractions right now. This is Starting With a Story. I'm John Lee, and we'll be back shortly with Dr. Scott's insights on distractions. personally do to kind of help your students or your, your kids or the people oh, yeah. that you meet with this technological boom that's going right. on? Well, with respect to technology, I really try to limit it both mm-hmm. for myself and especially for my kids mm-hmm. so that we're not fully immersed in it and involved in this kind of societal-wide addiction mm-hmm. to technology. So, so I do try to limit it. I'm only on Facebook. I'm not on, for instance, Twitter. Because I don't think the world needs all of my unfiltered thoughts. Oh, are you kidding? I feel like so many people would, would love to read those. Like, do you, think, do you think I should get on Twitter sometime? I I've think never, so. I really yeah. do. You have some crazy insights. <laughs> really, so, well, maybe, makes me think sometimes. Well, maybe on Twitter sometime, but I'm currently not on Twitter. I'm not on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I'm not on, what are the other sites people are on? Uh, MySpace? Okay. There's, oh, <laughs> uh, that's a good one, that's a good one. Um, yeah. No, there, I think the other main one is probably Snapchat. Yeah, Snapchat, not on that. Um, not on, so, so limiting my exposure to social media is, is one part of it. Also, spending time with myself, solitude. You do remember reading Walden and talking a lot about solitude. And I think there's something powerful about being alone. And I don't think we're alone with ourselves very much anymore. I feel like we're definitely afraid to be alone. I right. Think that's one of the fears that is kind of just growing in our society. Oh, I agree. Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, A fear like, of solitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we always need to be connected, whether it be, like you were saying, the phone, on the computer, or wherever you are, you need to be connected to something. There's constant need really for validation, as if my existence is dependent on someone contacting me on this phone mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And I think solitude's important because it gives you time for silence mm-hmm. and silence affords you the opportunity for reflection mm-hmm. and that can be scary introspection can be a scary thing especially when you begin to to discover things about yourself yeah. that you don't like just all those and, bottled up emotions right those traumatic experiences it, it definitely is something that i've definitely avoided for quite some time you know and right it's, yeah it's it can really be cool. intimidating it can be scary but i think the rewards are if you take time for silence and solitude and you take time to reflect honestly about yourself. You begin to see yourself differently and the world differently. And you begin to make those advances um, towards growth morally and intellectually and, and spiritually. Did you do retreats with campus ministry that focused in, on that at all? Yeah. Yeah. So at Villanova, I focused on retreat work for Search, which is a, right. a retreat through campus ministry. And on that journey, you just really really just get to know yourself and other people in a very yeah. safe environment, which mm-hmm. was a blessing. I, I couldn't have Absolutely. asked for anything more than that. And it really opened up the doors to kind of see within myself and see what I kind of believe that I care about and mm-hmm. kind of see where 
my passions are and tried to see where my struggles were in the past. I feel like that's been something that I think I overcame this fear or this mm. experience back in my childhood. But mm. if I kind of break things down on how I act and react to things, mm-hmm. like they're just still right there. Oh, yeah. For example, one of the experiences was I used to make fun of myself as, as like a mask. Uh, yeah. I, I listened to Lewis Howes and he goes over a book called uh, Mask of Masculinity. And it was like yeah. a Joker mask where you try to be funny in order to hide your pain kind of thing. Oh, sure. And, yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought I overcame that and now I'm, I'm kind of funny and I don't make fun of myself. So that's good. But right. on this retreat, I realized that I always kind of make fun of myself in regards to intelligence and saying mm. like, oh, I'm stupid or I can't do this because I'm not smart enough or I wasn't good enough for this, that or the other. And mm. uh, I remember one of my good friends, Alyssa, she basically said to me, like, didn't you just tell me that when you were younger, you used to make fun of yourself to hide your pain? And I was like, mm-hmm. I did say that. And she's like, what are you doing now? And I was like, oh, my gosh. And it was a huge, huge moment that I, I thought I overcame, but I didn't. And it, I wouldn't have been able to do that without that safe space of that retreat. So. Right. So she helped facilitate that epiphany. Mm-hmm. She helped you realize that. Yeah. And it's so true with humor that humor can be used to bring people together, but it can also be used to push people away yeah. and to put up a barrier to be, to put up a mask. Yeah, and so sure. I, yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good insight. Did you ever go to any retreats growing up? Well, growing up, I we worked a lot in the summer. Uh, we yeah. worked a lot at my, on my parents' property, mm-hmm. so I didn't go to uh, any retreats, but. But I remember I was a camp counselor in high school mm-hmm. at a Christian camp called Oakley. Oh, cool. And, cool. and I remember really enjoying it, really enjoying the intimacy of getting to know people in, in that setting and being outside mm-hmm. of the regular kind of structure of society and life. And, and so it did, it did have elements of retreats. We did have Bible studies, for instance, early in the morning. I, and I remember, and this was a long time ago and many milkshakes ago, I used to go jogging before oh, nice. the Bible study. And the Bible study was at some ungodly hour, mm. at something like 6 That's or 7 a.m. <laughs> and, and so I remember I would go jogging beforehand, mm. and uh, and then I would be exhausted. And I think mm. sometimes I fell asleep during the Bible study. That That's possible. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, but so, but I really think, um, I really think those are powerful experiences and, mm-hmm. and people always talk about the takeaways and the, and the spiritual insights that they, mm-hmm. they gain from them. Was it you that told the story about how you held hands after at a retreat that you went to? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the story about, or Oh, there was a, so a retreat in high school where yeah. at the end we lined up face to face and right. held hands and looked each other in the eyes for like, but you couldn't speak, right? Yeah. No was, speaking, no speaking, play right. some music. And then you would just kind of shift over when they, uh, it was like a nonverbal quiet bell or something. Yeah. Like you held hands and you looked at each other, right. And you were trying to communicate non-verbally what you meant to each other mm-hmm. and what the time meant. And yeah. I remember you saying in class, there were tears. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Cause Nowadays, there's definitely a lot less eye contact, yeah. just in general. And yeah, I've you, noticed that with students, mm, for sure. Yeah, and there's no looking deeply or directly into someone else's eyes. Right. And I forget what the quote is exactly, but it was that the eyes were the window to the heart. Yeah, or to the soul, right. Yeah, yeah or right. to the soul, exactly. Yeah. 
And I, I never really resonated with that until that moment in high school where after this super intense day, mm. we ended the day just kind of looking into everyone's eyes and you just felt everything that they were feeling. And it was, it was surreal. Like it, I would never expect that that would be a possibility to just look into someone's eyes for maybe it was like 10, 20 seconds. Yeah, it wasn't that long, but it feels like a long time when you're, when you're involved in it. I remember when you shared the story in our ACS seminar mm. and I thought it was really powerful and the power of physical contact and the power of a direct gaze mm. um, and trying to communicate without words. Yeah. And I remember joking that maybe at the end of ACS, we should all line up. <laughs> we yeah. didn't, but it was, but yeah. it was an interesting idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's so awesome that you remember that. That's cool. Oh, of Thank course. you. Appreciate yeah. that. Wow. So do you look into people's eyes directly that often? Or? Oh, yeah. No, I definitely try to. Um, I really think that's important mm. to because you read so much from a person based on their eyes, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so. People only tell you so much by what they say, but if you read their body language, and especially if you read their eyes, you see so much more. And sometimes, actually, there's a conflict between what they're saying and how they look. Mm. And so you can only you can only gauge that and identify that if you're looking deeply in someone's eyes. So, yeah, no, I think it's really important. But what I'm discovering with my students mm. is because so much of their social interactions are mediated through the phone, right, mm. that... Um, they're not accustomed to direct eye contact as if they're not comfortable with it anymore. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I'm just noticing that, <laughs> noticing that change in the past, even in the past three to five years, Ooh, I've really, noticed the really difference. Cool. Yeah. As social media and technology is becoming more ubiquitous in yeah. social interaction. Yeah. And I think it's a loss. And, yeah. you know, to communicate with someone over the phone, which I almost never do <laughs> is, it's such a limited way of communicating to text people. I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, it's it's just so limiting, and it's such a controlled medium. Mm. And I just think it it loses all of the fun and danger of direct direct interplay and and mm. conversation. Mm. And so yeah, so I I think about that a lot, and I mm. I worry about getting to a place as a society where we lose that capacity for just direct, direct interpersonal communication mm. without technology. And I recognize, as I'm saying it, the irony that you and I have direct, direct yeah. contact right now <laughs> via technology. <laughs> but it can be good. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at, in each other's eyes. Yeah. So we're doing all right. Yeah, we're, we're doing, doing all right. Okay. We're doing, I feel like, <laughs> maybe the second best thing for our situation right now. Right, yeah. yeah. The, the practical, the distance, right? The yeah, physical the distance. distance. The trying to bridge that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. What are some memories you have about our ACS class? Any conversations you remember or moments that come to mind? I just remember a lot of, like, just shenanigans. There's uh, Yeah. Just listening to others' insights, I can't, I'm trying to think of like a specific moment, but I was just, it's escaping my mind. But I remember, you know, some days you probably noticed that not everyone read like a section or a Oh, is that, what? Book. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you saying that occasionally a student uh, walked into my ACS class without <laughs> having done the reading? Because yeah, if that's the case, I need to send out a group email <laughs> to everyone. Tori would have done it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe first Ben. Year, first year. Ben in first semester. First but, semester Ben would have done it. Yeah. 
But what what really resonated with me was the fact that we could still have such a fruitful conversation about it just from your guidance of the conversation and just being able to get past that and really kind of get the insights from the students themselves. I thought right, that because... you were able to really pull things out from us that most teachers wouldn't be able to. Oh, well, that's kind. That's kind. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I think I recognize that students, especially in the first year, but every year, they're pulled in so many different directions. Mm. And so it doesn't make sense to have a punitive atmosphere where where if you haven't done the readings, mm. that the, the class time isn't going to be productive. Mm-hmm. So my approach was always to allow a certain amount of shenanigans, let it get it, get it out of your system, mm-hmm. and also use it as a way to try to bring the class together mm-hmm. and to create those moments, because sometimes deep moments happen at the end of a certain amount of shenanigans, mm-hmm. yeah. and and that's what I've learned, and we and we had some nice nice moments like that, and there were a lot of deep conversation, um, mm-hmm. and there you know I look when I'm looking at our class list, just some, such great people in yeah. the class. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, remember Jay? Jay had so many great things to say. Jay <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so many, mm-hmm. uh, so many great students and great people. So we did. That's what I appreciated too was our the quality of our conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so even when people maybe didn't complete, you know, all of Augustine's confessions <laughs> and read all the footnotes, and yeah, notes, yeah, yeah. that still we were able to try to touch on. Mm-hmm. Some of the deeper questions that Augustine would have appreciated, or Thoreau, or whoever we were reading. Yeah. Do you remember? I'm going to put you on the spot. Your favorite book from that course? Favorite book? I I liked the Inferno. The Inferno was pretty cool. I yeah, you like. Okay. That one, that one was cool. I it was, it was like pretty dense in my opinion. Also, I haven't read that much in college. Last time when we spoke, I, I mentioned that. I read more books in the past like six or seven months. Yeah, now, yeah, the past, like, six or seven years, which is crazy to say, but it's uh, it really, I really woke up after graduating to see like, yeah. oh, I'm learning something from a book. That's crazy. Like that for some reason that didn't click for me in college. And that's good, man. And that validates a conversation I had with a, a fellow professor at Villanova once, which was this concern I had that in in some ways we were asking questions and reading books that students couldn't connect with, that they were more advanced. Mm-hmm. And and what he said was that what we're doing is planting a seed. Mm-hmm. And so that after college, in later years, they can go back to those questions and those texts and rediscover it. Mm-hmm. So the fact that after college you were able to rediscover and have the time for reading, mm-hmm. I'd like to think as at least in part of an outcome of our ACS. So you kind of answered it there, but what is your goal? What, what do you hope that the students gain from taking a, a course with you? Sure. I try to, every time I teach a course, I'll tell you, I try to in some way make it better than I've ever taught it before. So I try to learn from past mistakes I try, try to incorporate what's worked and what hasn't worked in previous iterations of the course. Mm-hmm. And I try to, on the one hand, introduce students to the course material itself in a way that they can absorb it and utilize it. I try to empower them to learn how to analyze the material and think about it on their own mm-hmm. and to find ways to make it relevant and useful. And to really, it's, it's kind of the classic, I don't try to teach them what to think, but how to think. So the course isn't about my perspective on anything. It's about how can we learn together reading these texts and find different 
analytical avenues to to read and to write about and to discuss complex questions that arise from these texts. So that at the end of the course, if they've mastered the material and if they've acquired the ability to analyze it from different perspectives, and if they've been able to write about it in a way that's coherent, then I think I will have done my job. But one thing I like to do is when I haven't seen a student for many years, I like to ask, you know, what concepts or ideas stuck with them. Mm. And it's a way of gauging, a way of seeing what of the teaching lasts. And one thing that I've learned from ACS is sometimes it's the conversations that they remember more than the material. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's the case for me. <laughs> <laughs> Are there things that you struggle with while you're teaching or things that you're always looking to improve on while you're Absolutely, teaching? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. I, I'm always trying to improve my methodology. So trying to find the right balance between lecture and group discussion and small group work, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm always experimenting with, with that. I'm trying to move away from too much dense material in lecturing and trying to go to more bullet points that I can unpack so that students aren't frantically writing down material but they're more following a train of thought. So that's one area I think I've relied too much on densely packed material mm -hmm. in an effort to try to transmit the information. I'm trying to move away from that mm -hmm. to uh, more of kind of a dialogical model. And yeah, so there's, there's always ways that I'm trying to improve and trying to improve the way I can communicate with students. And, mm -hmm. and one way is trying to find analogs or analogies mm -hmm. that that is more accessible to them, which gets harder as you get older in some ways, because yeah. I recognize students are in such a different world <laughs> than I am in a lot of ways. So, but, and I always try to learn from students and, and they're always teaching me something. I mean, every class uh, and being open to that, being open to the ways in which students can teach me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I'm always trying to improve every year. Awesome. Awesome. Now, a lot of your students are either graduating or entering the, the real world, the adult oh, world. Yes. Um, what are some pieces of advice that you would give to people that are entering the real world and just trying to start their story? Sure. Yeah, I would say have a plan. Have mm -hmm. a plan for, for what you want to accomplish and, and how to get there. Mm -hmm. I would say be patient. Be patient with yourself mm -hmm. and be patient with the process. Mm -hmm. And don't lose touch. Don't lose touch with the people that the friendships in your life that, that have mattered. Mm -hmm. And I think constantly prioritize what's important to you. Mm -hmm. Constantly revisit what, what are my priorities? What's, what's animating me? What am I trying to accomplish? And where do I want to see myself in five, 10 and 15 years? Mm -hmm. And am I doing the things now every day that will help me get there? Mm -hmm. and so, so yeah, I would say just. Be, and be open, be open to the mm -hmm. people around you and the situations. I mean, when I went to Villanova, mm -hmm. I really did not think it was going to be a good fit for me at first. Mm -hmm. And so I walked in with some trepidation. Mm -hmm. And then I realized quite quickly that it was a perfect fit in a lot mm -hmm. of ways and that I was really energized by it. So just be open to surprise. I've constantly yeah. been surprised. Mm -hmm. So awesome. try to, yeah, try to have that, that sense of adventure and, mm -hmm. 
and mystery to existence and, and you just never know what's coming next. But yeah, the real world, the undiscovered country real that's world. coming. Yeah. And it's 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 just another adventure. It's just a new a new stage and to try to take what you've learned and yeah. and try to continue to grow. Just always be willing to grow. Yeah. So when you had to kind of choose your priorities throughout, what are some of the hardest things that you kind of had to sacrifice in your pursuits? Well, you're right, because every choice you make, when you consider it, it has enormous consequences. Every yes is a thousand no's, and every no is a thousand lost futures. And mm. and so to realize the gravity of your choice without becoming debilitated by that yeah, realization, because that, but yeah, because that Destroyed can happen too. It, yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> but no, to, to realize that sacrifices will have to be made. So for me, the big sacrifice, one of the biggest sacrifices was going to school in the U.S. and teaching in the U.S., which I loved and which was so enriching for me. The sacrifice was time with family back home in Canada. And that was a major sacrifice. And it was hard for us, and I think it was probably hard for the family. And so I recognize that and acknowledge it and then try to appreciate now, for instance, where we're living about three hours from where I'm from, to appreciate the fact that we can now interact with our family a lot more easily. But everything has a cost. There's a cost-benefit analysis for every decision. And I would say that was probably the biggest sacrifice on the road in my education and early teaching was was being away from family and friends. So do you think that you've reached where you want to be? In regards to your life, where do you see yourself in your 5, 10, 15 year advice? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, it's always hard to predict. And the life in the academy, it's difficult to project in terms of where I will be and what I will be doing. Mm-hmm. I would think in 5 to 10 years, I will still be teaching, hopefully still be, still be writing, mm-hmm. still be learning and growing. And, uh, you know, I, I hope to... I hope to still be actively involved in, with my students and students that have graduated and helping them achieve mm-hmm. their goals. And so in a way, when I look back five years, mm-hmm. I'm doing a lot of the similar things that I was doing back then, but just in a different context. So mm-hmm. I'm constantly open to innovation and adventure and, and who knows what will happen next. But I know that wherever I am and whatever I'm doing, I'll be striving to do better work and to be better and to really just be actively involved with the people around me. There's that's one thing I found. It doesn't matter where you are, they're wonderful people. And if you're just open to a new relationship and new friendships, that becomes harder when you're older because your time's yeah. limited. Mm-hmm. Especially with four kids, right? Yeah. I mean it's just my time is so limited. So and yeah. and you already have such deep friendships that you're invested in. Mm-hmm. And you can't sustain every friendship. Yeah. And so your time's limited and, and in a way your dance card is full. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to say, well, I'm just not going to be involved in any new relationships. But I think, yeah, it's very easy to do the older you get, especially. But I think mm-hmm. I really try to be open to the new friendships that are mm-hmm. before me and, and the new opportunities. And, and there's always something to learn and there's always areas to grow. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm, yeah, I'm always trying to reach for what's next in myself and, in the world around me and trying just trying to be better in all of this, you know, talking about identity, mm-hmm. better as a husband, father, better as a professor, better as a writer, and every in all of these different facets, how mm-hmm. can I improve? Um, awesome. 
Yeah. And and what am I doing well, right? So mm. so that you're not constantly trying to eye for deficiencies, but what mm. am I doing well, and how can I build on that? Mm. Mm. What are some things that you hope to work on and improve on? Yeah. Well, I'd like to. I'd say in the next five years, I would like to develop some new courses where I'm teaching. Mm. I'd like to improve the curriculum, kind of at a more moves, yeah. making moves. That's right. <laughs> Try to trying to improve um, the program and the curriculum that we have. So that's more of an administrative level, which is boring, I know, but it's something I want to do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and trying to undertake some new writing projects over the next five years. Um, I love once I get writing, and I think in a lot of ways I'm more of a Moses than an Aaron. I prefer to write. Mm. I'd rather write than talk. Yeah. And so trying to um, get involved in that more. And the, I, what I find with me is the more I write, I get absorbed in it so quickly. I get lost in it, and that's and I love that. I love, I love to, you to have, write. You have a few publications already out there, then that's right. out yeah. and about, right? Um, yeah. Just for the audience to say, what were the names of those books? Sure. One, my first book's called Journey Back to God: Origin on the Problem of Evil, mm. with Oxford University Press. And my second book is Pathways in Theodicy: mm. An Introduction to the Problem of Evil. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Before we end, I know we're getting a little close to the end of our time here. I want to take the time to, to thank you for your influence in my life and the students' lives that you teach. As I mentioned before, you really do a great job with really bringing out the best and the deep parts of students that, you know, they don't necessarily get to express or talk about or really reflect on. And I think your course, your personality, and your ability to kind of draw those aspects out of each individual you meet is just so fascinating and so admirable and i definitely try to incorporate that into my kind of interactions with the people that i meet so i want to thank you for that and just thank you for you know spending some time with us today and sharing oh. your insights with the community well i'm touched thank you john lee thank you for your friendship and your vulnerability and i want to say hi to all the villanova alumni out there <laughs> yeah for sure yeah. for sure um so as we finish up, I have three questions that, that I ask all my guests. So Great. this is a little more on the funner side, I suppose. Sounds good. First one is, what's been the favorite chapter of your life so far? The favorite chapter of my life? Definitely having kids. Fatherhood yeah. is, is such a joy, and, and you discover you discover things about yourself and your spouse mm -hmm. when you have kids. So definitely the chapter with kids. Is, so my is it favorite. the chapter with the first kid, the second, third, or fourth? <laughs> all of them. Definitely all of them. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because there, we, ha we had some debate about whether to have a fourth, mm -hmm. and, and we finally did, and I'm just so happy. And definitely, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Having a big family is a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Um, <laughs> second question is, if you had to give a, a name to the next chapter in your life, what would you name it? Oh, John Lee. <laughs> So the name to the next chapter in my life, Transcendence. Whoa. We're going to let that one simmer. And let's, let it sit for a minute. Let it soak in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I like that. And, and final question is, if you had to put a title to the book of your entire life up until this moment right now, what would you title that book? Adventures in Grace. Adventures in Grace. Adventures in Grace. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. That was uh, Dr. Scott. Again, thank you so much for being here today, and I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure and an honor. All right, man.
Stay safe, stay you. Alright, see you later. And that's the end of today's interview with Dr. Mark Scott. I hope you were able to gain some value from his story, just as I have over and over again. Make sure to check out his books. He has two out right now, and as he mentioned, the first is called Journey Back to God, Origin on the Problem of Evil, and the second is Pathways in Theodicy, An Introduction to the Problem of Evil. The links will be provided in this episode's show notes, so make sure to go to the website and check them out. Dr. Scott also wanted me to let you know that he's always up for an engaging conversation about his published work, his own experiences, and just life in general. So feel free to reach out to him at mscott 4 at laurentian.ca. That's M-S-C-O-T-T-4 at L-A-U-R-E-N-T-I-A-N dot C-A. Wow, felt like I was out of spelling bee again. Now, if you enjoyed this episode or something resonated with you from the story, don't forget to tell us about it. Let us know your thoughts, experiences, and the parts that really spoke out to you the most. If you found value in this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, leaving a review, or even sharing this episode with your friends. And lastly, if you have a story or know someone that does that you think would connect with others, shoot me an email at share at startingwiththestory.com to potentially be interviewed for a future episode. All of the music in today's episode was originally composed by the legendary Bryson Kemp. Check him out at brysonkempmusic.com. I want to be able to connect with people and connect people to each other through storytelling. You can be a part of that journey as well. Now go out there and share your story. This is John Lee on Starting With A Story, signing off. Stay safe, stay you.